I'm Kate Daniels. There's a special quote I really appreciate. Be the change you want to see in the world. Dr. Ronald Crutcher exemplifies this, I believe. He's an incredible man, a world-class classical cellist, an educator, a professor of music at a number of universities, and currently is president of Richmond University in Virginia. And now he's written his memoir, I Had No Idea You Were Black, and I am privileged to have him here as a guest with us this morning. Dr. Ronald Crutcher, good morning. It is so wonderful to welcome you here. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking time to, uh, to have a discussion about my book. I am thrilled, truly thrilled to be able to do so. Let me tell you, I, I love stories and I love hard as it is in some cases, you know, some of the things that go on. I still do love this book. I had no idea you were black navigating race on the road to leadership. And it was the title that caught my eye. I thought, oh, my goodness, what could this story be? And uh, maybe that's a good place to start. You can tell us how that title came to be. Absolutely. That was not the original title that I had in mind, and I won't tell you what that was, but I, I will give you a clue that, that, that the original title is now one of the chapters. Ah. Um, but what happened is that that quote, I had no idea you were black, was a direct quote from a, an incident that uh, I had when I was head of the School of Music at the University of Texas at Austin. I had been trying for about two years to get an appointment with a man who was CEO of an oil company and also head of a foundation that, uh, that gave money to support violinists. And I had some violinists I was interested in, in getting money for. And so I went down to his office in Houston. We, we went into his office, shook my hand, and literally as I was lowering myself to my seat, he looked at me and he said, I had no idea you were black. And, and I thought to myself, okay, that's an interesting way to begin the conversation. Um, let me just listen and see what he has to say. <laughs> and so he went on then to say, perhaps you can help me. My wife and I have been attending the Aspen Music Festival for more than 30 years, and we rarely see any black violinists. Why is that? And of course, then that gave me a great opportunity to have a conversation with him, something that we both had uh, about a subject we were, both, we were both interested in. And in fact, one of the violinists I was interested in supporting happened to be black at the University of uh, Texas at Austin. And we had a very lively uh, discussion. I told him about what we were doing at the University of Texas, about some of the reasons why there was a dearth of black violinists. And in the end, I, I got the money I was looking for. And, and so I use this often with my mentees as a cautionary tale both as, you know, I, I pose to them, say, what is a way, uh, a more elegant way that he might have started that conversation? And then on the other hand, you know, how might you have responded? And, uh, uh, and then, you know, what might have happened had I responded if I'd gotten upset and walked away? I mean, I mean obviously, I would not have gotten the money I was seeking. So um, that, that's where the title comes from. And, and I, I, initially, I did not want to use that as the title. And um, it wasn't until last summer, after all the, you know, the, the George Floyd incident and, and uh, you know, the racial and, uh, and social upheaval, that my editor and I had a discussion about it. And at the end, I thought, yeah, this is a, this is the right time for me to use that title. So let's do it. Let's go for it. And that 
does make perfect sense. A, a different time in history, maybe not, but uh, yeah, yeah it, it certainly is fitting and uh, certainly for these times. And that's a great reason to have your b- book be coming out now. I'm, I'm glad you've been working on it. I think I got the idea about five or six years. It's been kind of in the making. That's correct. Yeah, well, I actually, the uh, I started thinking about it when I was still president of Wheaton College in Massachusetts in 2013, as I was coming to the end of my 10-year term there. I had two five-year contracts, not a 10-year term, but but at the end of my second five-year contract, uh, about to enter, go into a sabbatical. And uh, I had given a speech in 2006 to um, at the Association of American Colleges and Universities, for the, um, the every year they do a luncheon for faculty and staff of color, and they had, we always have a keynote speaker. I was the keynote speaker, and I had my speech was called "Spiraling Through the Glass Ceiling: colon, Seven Lessons for Any Person of Color Seeking a Leadership Position in Higher Education." That's that's longer than the actual title, but something like that. And, um, and, and, and it was after that I began thinking, I, I kind of told my story and offered these seven lessons. And I thought, I really ought to write more about this. But it wasn't until 2013, quite frankly, that I had the time to think about it. Um, and I worked with a, a, a book person. We did a book proposal. We sent it out, uh, you know, and, and, and not much happened with it. I put it to bed went to, on sabbatical with the intention of completing the book. But quite frankly, when we got to Berlin, Germany, where we were spending our sabbatical, uh, I said to my wife, you know, we may, we may never again have an opportunity to do exactly what we want to do on someone else's dime. Let's just enjoy ourselves. So I kind of set it aside. I did send it out for uh, a friend to reach yet. She, she, I guess I must have told her about it or something. She's asked to read it. She gave me some good feedback. And then when I came to the University of Richmond, uh, it was not until I was having dinner with Greg Shaw and his wife in Seattle, as a matter of fact, in Bellevue, actually. And somehow the, the subject of this memoir came up and he said, you know, I'd love to see you know, what you have. So I sent it to him. He really was interested in it. He worked with me to get me with a, an agency in, in New York, and the rest is history. I mean, in the end, I actually ended up publishing it with Clyde Hill Publishing because they really, Greg really understood what I was trying to do with the book. There were some other publishers who wanted me to make changes, but he really wanted to support me to publish the book that I wanted to write. And that's how we got started. And that's a beautiful story. It really rings through with so much else that's gone on in your life, because this is a memoir. But the way that came about, there's little pieces of serendipity to it. Yeah. yeah. And that's what I kind of felt, too. I mean, it's it's a big thing. Your career as a performer, as a cellist, uh, also began just because there was an opportunity that came around and your hand popped up and you said, yeah, I want to I want to yeah. go for the band. Right. So tell us yeah, that story. Yeah. And you know what? I mean, a lot of the stories I tell, I one of the messages that I want, particularly for young people, to understand is that a lot of times in your life, things will happen that appear to be out of the ordinary or not necessarily connected to what you're interested in or the direction you're going. 
but sometimes it's worth taking a chance to just explore them, as long as they're safe and not, not anything that's crazy, um, and because you never know what might develop. And that's, that's what was very true with, with my starting the cello. I started singing. My first involvement with music was through singing, starting at the age of six in the black church in Cincinnati, Zion Baptist Church. I sang in a, a youth gospel group, and then eventually in the eighth grade, I was singing in the Samuel Ogg Junior High Choir, one of the best junior high choirs in the state of Ohio. The band director came in one day and he said, we have a program this summer at Withrow High School where you can learn to play an instrument. Is anybody interested? And I just raised my hand along with two other people. I have no idea other than the fact, uh, other idea why I raised my hand, other than the fact it sounded interesting, you know, I, I might be interested. He had us come to meet him after school. He gave me a test, an ear test to determine how good my hearing was. Uh, and he, my aural skills, A-U-R-A-L skills were. And he said, you have almost perfect pitch. Uh, you can play any instrument you want. I love the string instrument. And to be honest with you, I chose the cello primarily because I was overweight at the time. Uh, and I figured if you play the violin, you have to stand up. You play the cello, you sit down. And I just, I fell in love with the, the instrument. And then eight months later, another half of stance, I performed in the state music teachers competition, the Ohio State, uh, Ohio Music Educators Association string competition. I played the first two movements of the box, suite and uh, number one in G major. And the cello professor at Miami University of Ohio, 35 miles from my home in Cincinnati, happened to be in the audience. And afterwards, she was amazed that I could play so well after only having played eight months. She invited me to come to music camp at Miami during the summer. I think now in retrospect, because she wanted to observe me and see how hard I could work. At the end of the two weeks, she said to my parents, if you will get him here every Saturday, I will teach him free of charge. And so at the age of 15, uh, every Saturday, I would take the Ohio bus lines bus at 7.40 in the morning, go to Oxford, Ohio. It took an hour and a half to get there, even though it was only 35 miles away. It went a circuitous route. It went from Cincinnati to Hamilton to Oxford, Ohio. And I'd stay there all day. I would not come home until 6. And you know, this woman, her name was uh, Professor Elizabeth Pottinger, became the most significant person in my life outside of my mother and my father. My parents trusted her. Um, she was a, an amazing uh, woman, a Renaissance woman, world traveler, and, you know, a lifelong member. She, she was white. She was from a kind of, I think, Eastern European um, heritage, grew up in Illinois, but she was a, a lifetime member of the NAACP and became very good friends with my parents. Uh, my parents trusted her so much. Here, again, another happenstance that two months after I started studying with her, she asked my parents if she could take me to Richmond, Indiana. Now, this is only 10 miles away from Oxford, but still, I was going to be in her car, so she asked my parents' permission. She wanted me to go to Richmond, Indiana, to meet a famous musical family, the Klemperer family. Uh, the Klemperers were um, George Klemperer, who was the matriarch of the family, had immigrated to the United States from Germany, and he was a cousin to the the famous conductor, one of the most famous conductors of the 20th century, Otto Klemperer. I went to play for them, uh, and it was at that point that I met Mr. Klemperer, his wife his four children, and his youngest child, Erica. I was 15. Erica was 12 at the time. 
subsequently, Erica and I have played in a trio, the Klimper Trio, piano trio, for almost 40 years. We started in 1980. We haven't given any concerts since 2017, but up, up until then, we played concerts here in the United States as well as in, in Germany and uh, other parts of Europe. So Liz Potiger introduced me to this family. It was, you know, again, happenstance. I went there. I played the Echo Sonata for them. I think, and I never really asked her this question. I wish I had. I think she wanted to, because uh, he was a violinist, she wanted to find out from him uh, if he thought I was as talented as she did. I, you know, I, I don't really know why we went there, but that was a, a, an amazing experience. And actually, his wife, uh, Mrs. Klemper, eventually became one of my spiritual mentors as well. That is just such a, a fabulous story. And I I think we can then learn, and hopefully young people, and of course you as president of uh, the University of Richmond now and having that opportunity to be a, among these youth, have an opportunity to share and encourage them and mentor them to yeah. see those opportunities around them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's I mean, as a result of my own life's experience, and I mean, Liz Potiger is only one of the many mentors that I have had in my life. And as a result of my own experience, um, I have, um, throughout my career, mentored young people um, from the very beginning, you know, even actually when I was teaching in Germany, I lived in Germany for several years. Um, I have, I still have students there that I'm in, in contact with. As a matter of fact, there's one who's now a, a fairly famous cellist in, in Germany, Eva Berke. Um, uh, but it, it, it's my way of paying for it, if you will. But really, also as a university president, so this is the, this so all right, you know, this is the 21st year of my having been uh, a, a top executive at a university. First as provost and executive vice president, and then subsequently as a president of two different institutions. And when you're in these jobs, you often have opportunity to do guest classes. But to teach a class, particularly as president, is really, really difficult because I'm traveling, well, at least I was before COVID, 65% of the time. And so by mentoring students, and my wife and I, Dr. Betty Neal Crutcher, have been doing this systematically since uh, 1999 when we went to Miami. Every year, we, we bring in a new cohort of mentees. With our first-year mentees, we meet with them once a month. Previously, it used to be over lunch. Now it's through, you know, through Zoom. And we do a number of things with them. And we meet with the, the freshmen once a month. And then with the upperclassmen, once at the beginning of the semester, once at the end of the semester. But they also have access to us in between. Uh, and she actually spends a lot more time with her upperclass mentees than I do. But those upper-class mentees also know when they, and when they get to their senior year, we have several conversations about their next steps. I often write letters of recommendation for them, and I still get letters and emails from my mentees from years ago. I mean, recently, for instance, one of my mentees from 40 years ago contacted me, and he's one of the top universities in the country as a professor and was being considered for a position as associate provost. And so I walked him through the whole process, how to negotiate, what to ask for, questions to ask, you know, what to put in the job description. That to me is paying it forward. I mean, it's just 
really a way of my saying thank you to all the great mentors that I had in my life. Indeed, I would not have even thought about becoming a college president had it not been for one of my mentors, Bryce Jordan. Bryce Jordan was the first musician to be the president of a large university. He was a very successful president at Penn State University. As a matter of fact, if you go to Penn State today and go watch a basketball game, you'll watch that game in the Bryce Jordan Center. Bryce Jordan retired from Penn State, moved back home to Texas, and was chair of the the Fine Arts Council at the University of Texas when I was the first director of the School of Music. And he took me out to lunch one day and sat me down. He basically said, it's obvious to me that you're going to become a college president. Have you thought about the kind of college where you want to become a president? And I was thrown a little off guard because I wasn't expecting, I thought we were going to be talking about the the upcoming uh, uh, capital campaign at Texas and the goals I had in mind for the School of Music. And so I said to him rather glibly, well, probably not a place as large as the University of Texas at Austin, probably a small liberal arts college. And afterwards, it really bothered me. You know, why did you give him that response? So I went to the bookstore, went to the education section. I started looking for, for books, and I came across a book called Colleges That Change Lives, 40 Schools You Should Consider Outside of the Ivy League or something like that by Lauren Pope. started reading the introduction, and I, my eye caught a sentence, and it said, these are schools that transform the lives of the students who attend them. And I thought, that's what I want. If I'm going to be a president, I want to be president of a college that where the faculty and staff understand their roles as mentors and take it seriously and help to transform the lives of the students who attend them. And I've been blessed enough, fortunate enough to have been at two universities where that is the case. Um, and not just by chance, really by by purpose, by really researching and and choosing in a, in this very intelligent way. And this is what you are modeling, really, for those that you are leading, yeah. that you are coming in contact with. Yes, and and choosing with the help of my mentors. So let me tell you what Bryce Jordan did to me, did with me, in uh, after that uh, encounter. He started nominating me for college presidencies. And so the first interview I had was or uh, Sarah Lawrence College. And he sat down with me. He, he, you know, he peppered me with questions. We went through a kind of a mock interview. And at the end of the interview, he said to me, okay, what do you think your chances are of getting this position? And I said to him, well, I don't have any illusions. I don't, think, I don't, I, I don't necessarily think I'm going to get the position, particularly since this is my first time. But... I want to do well enough so that the search firm will want to nominate me for other positions. He said, good. He said, because then he started telling me about, he got up to about eight or nine schools. He said, if I could tell you the number of times when I was a bridesmaid, that's the way he put it, for a position but didn't get it. And my, I mean, my jaw dropped because in the music profession, everyone looked up to Bryce Jordan. I mean, you know, he was, as I said, the first person with a musical background to be president of a large university. Penn State is a huge university. And so, you know, he prepared me for uh, these interviews. And, and this is exactly what I, you know, again, what I did with the mentee I told you about just a few minutes ago at this very prestigious university. 
who did get the job, by the way. He's now an associate provost there. But you have to be thoughtful. You have to be intentional. And you can't also, and another message I try to give the young people, I think if you sit around and you expect people to bring things to you, then you're going to be disappointed. I've never expected people to hand me anything on the plate. I learned at a very young age, uh, at the age of seven from my father, that particularly as a black person in the United States, there are going to be people who are not going to like me simply because of the color of my skin, but by no uncertain terms should I allow that to limit me. He said, you, you know, you have as much right, we have as much right to everything that the United States has to offer as any other person, as long as you're willing to work for it, he said. And so I've never thought about, you know, when people ask me, has it been difficult because you're a black person? That's the wrong question to ask me. That's never entered my mind. What has been in my mind is if I want to achieve something, I have to work hard for it. I have to present myself in a certain way. The other part of my upbringing with my, my mother, my mother, my father were very different. My, very, my mother was very refined and a very kind and loving, warm person. And so, and my father was kind and loving, but he wasn't warm. He was kind of an in-your-face extrovert. You know, he was the first black manager of the world's largest machine tool company, and he only went to the eighth grade. He had to quit school in the eighth grade because he was the oldest son. He lived on a tobacco farm. And his father told him, you need to quit school so you can help me with the farm. My father loved school. He eventually did go back. So, you know, those I have, uh, you know, the, it was Goethe who said from Faust, Ich habe zwei Seelen in meinem Bus. I have two souls in my breast, in my heart. And I have the, you know, the confluence of my mother's influence and my father's influence. My father's influence is what has made me, you know, persevere and continue moving forward despite any setbacks. And my mother has been the refined side of me. My mother, if you were to hear my father talk, you would think, oh, my God, where did he come from? I mean, he used to torture the king's language. He would pronounce asparagus, spigus. My mother never once said to us, there were three of us, do not talk like your father. What she did, however, was to always correct our pronunciation and our grammar. She did it in a loving way, but she never said, don't talk like your dad. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, and with respect to our students, that's what I try to model. My wife and I also, we hear from students, we model what it's like to be in a loving relationship for many years. We've been married for 42 years. And I believe, believe very strongly that in any leadership position, people are looking at you. And they're looking at you for guidance. But also, young people are looking to you as a model. You know, maybe not necessarily to do what you are doing, but as a model with respect to how to comport oneself as a successful adult. And certainly, with this book now, I had no idea you were Black. Freshly out. It's just out this week. Here's an opportunity to read your story and to get more of the detail and the nuances, because there's so much more. You've touched on some key areas, of course, <laughs> Dr. Crutcher, but there's so much more here. You know, uh, you mentioned the hard work and the discipline, really critical that some people might say, oh, well, you know, it's it's luck. You were in the right place at the right time. Well, maybe, but you had to work for it. It didn't just fall in your lap. 
That's correct. That's right. I mean, even, you know, in one of the chapters I, I titled Being Ready, where, you know, uh, uh, and, and I, I have to say, uh, uh, Claudia Rowe, the edit, my editor on, for this book, was, was amazing. She was able to cajole me, to get me to think back, because I have a very good memory. I mean, that's, I always had, my, my two brothers did as well, as well as my 96-year-old aunt, whom I interviewed for this book, has a memory like a steel trap, even today. I mean, she'll be 97 in July. Uh, and what Claudia did was she she asked, she would I would write something for it and she would ask me questions like describe how you felt at this moment or what was that person thinking what did that person look like she really helped me to think back on experiences I had had which I hadn't really thought about in many 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 years but what I hope will happen is that young people in particular will read the book and be able to take some lessons from it, you know, lessons about leadership, lessons about how to treat other people. One of my hopes, too, is that writ large, all Americans will come away from the book with some ideas about how to help us as a country resolve the polarized situation that we're in right now, because that's something I feel very strongly about, and that concerns me, uh, because I think that any American who's concerned about the political and cultural polarization will be able to, to take away some ideas that will help them in their own personal way kind of push against that. And the reason I think that's important is that, you know, as a country, as a democracy, we are not a fully-fledged adult. We are, the United States of America, in terms of democracy, is at best an emerging adult. And so we have to really pay attention to the care of our interaction so that we can sustain democracy, American democracy, as we know it. And I think there's no more important time than right now for us to be thinking about ways in which to do that. And I'm hoping that my book can, in some small way, contribute to that work. That is beautiful. And I will underscore that because in the telling of your story in the way that you present those emotions that your editor kind of provoked from you in sharing that and being the thoughtful thinking man that you are helps us to understand how we might approach different situations in our life during this really challenging time that we're living in to be more thoughtful, considerate, try to see things from different points of view. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And and I mean, one thing, one story I tell, and this is from my mother, I give at the end of the book, some kind of three suggestions, uh, recommendations for those considering leadership positions, know yourself, be kind to others, no matter how difficult they are, and take care of yourself mentally and physically. Being kind to others, no matter how difficult they are, was something I had to really learn uh, early on. And and while I say my mother instilled that in me, there were times in my life, however, when early on in my career, when I would just block difficult people out. And of course, that's not always the best thing to do. What I eventually figured out how to do was to be able to see through to the inner of the person, the person's goodness around all the stuff because most people who are difficult are difficult because they've encountered some some challenges in their lifetime 
as children or later on in life. And you have to understand that. And so what I try to do is not to respond to the outer garment, if you will, of the person, which is all the, the difficult stuff. Because we're all, as human beings, when we came into the world, we were not born evil. We were not you know, born maniacal. <laughs> right? We were born, you know, little children, loving, you know, kind, open, etc. And what happens to us in our lifetime that makes, you know, kind of forms those negative attributes uh, to us. So that has been very, very important to me, particularly in my leadership job, because a lot of times it's those people who appear to be difficult who have important information that you can learn from or that can be valuable to you uh, in decision-making. Yes, such an important book, all of us. High school-age kids will get so much from this all the way to, like your aunt in her 90s, celebrating a birthday this year at 97. All ages will gain so much from this. And I mentioned that the book is just out, and where should we look for it? Well, any of your local bookstores will have it. Do a Google search. I had no idea you were black, and you'll be able to find it. And, of course, if you go to your favorite bookstore and they don't have it, just ask for it, and they can order it. That's cool. Right. Yeah. Well, Dr. Crutcher, this has just been such a gift. So wonderful to be able to speak to you directly, even though it's by phone. Still wonderful to make this connection. Thank you so greatly for this opportunity and for being the wonderful role model that you are. Thank you. Thank you. So this has been a pleasure to have a conversation with you, and um, I appreciate your taking the time. You're so welcome.